Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have a fun episode with actor, writer, and comedian Micah Sherman. Micah talks a lot about improv in this episode. It's a really great chat for that, but he also talks about acting because he has gotten to do a lot of cool things, and he has some very cool stories about working on the movie Ghosts of Girlfriends Past with Jennifer Garner and Robert Forster and Matthew McConaughey. So stick around for all of it, because it's really insightful and a fun, fun chat. I wanted to also take a moment to remind you to go to thereitispod.com. On the website, you can find blogs for old episodes, especially bracket blogs, and we also have our festival blog. We have a new one coming out tomorrow. And you can also find out about our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter. It is a free newsletter designed for creatives and comedians to get through this journey of trying to work in arts and entertainment a little easier. It can be pretty difficult to find inspiration for your work, and so we have a lot of tips for comedy and acting and what have you there, but we also share a lot of tips on balancing life a little easier. What are some good work-life habits to have so you can keep those things separate well, or some mindful meditations you can do just to calm down? I thought there was a big void in equipping creative people to get through life easier when trying to pursue the lifestyle that we pursue. We also have some things that are meant for inspiration, like maybe we saw a great interview and so we link to the video of that interview or maybe we just read this interesting or even fun thing and it's all just designed to give you a breath, make you feel a little heard and also equipped so you can keep moving forward as you progress. So check that out. Again, thereitispod.com. So on to today's episode. It's a really fun chat. I thought it was very insightful. So let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Micah Sherman. So great to see you again. It's been a few years. I think last time we saw each other was maybe 2018-ish, maybe 2019 okay. at Abby and Luke's. <laughs> previous oh, guests okay. of the yeah. podcast they had a party and you were there i was like oh hey i don't think at that time i realized that you were living in new york and i also didn't know that you knew them but that was the last time we saw each other which was a while ago now and now you're in la right yep i live in los angeles when did you move there uh, last summer oh okay i didn't realize it was it was last summer okay cool well i'm you know good for you good for you thank you making the move. Before we get to the move and what precipitated that, let's go back to the beginning for you. So you're from the Carol, you're from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yeah. I'm from the Carolinas. I lived in Raleigh in the eighties and then South Carolina from 1990 on. We met at Alchemy Comedy in Greenville, South Carolina, but That's not what I when you were living in the Carolinas. Yeah, yeah. I was on tour with Mike Kaplan and Zach Sherwin, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were doing comedy shows. You had a great show that you had, and you did a workshop at Alchemy that I took, a great workshop. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was a really great improv workshop. But yeah, you were there for a stand-up show that you did, and then also you did this improv workshop for the theater. And that was when I found out about you. I was like, oh, this guy does everything. And you were doing a bunch of things because you also did sketch the old school sketch show in New York. Isn't that a super long running sketch show here too? Like, Yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah. So I mentioned you're from Chapel Hill. You went to University of Georgia and you were mm -hmm. in, in, well, for me, it was called mass communication, but it was, was it media for you? I have a degree in uh, journalism. And, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was called uh, mass communication for us, but it, <laughs> it went through. It was, uh, 
I have, a, I have a bachelor's in journalism, which is an ABJ with a <laughs> focus in telecommunications production. Yes. When did comedy become a part of your interest in, in acting? Had you already done that? Because for me, I wanted to be an actor, but a mass communication degree made sense because it it's still, it's in media and entertainment. You get some hard skills that you can try to get out in the workforce. And was that your plan too? Where did comedy come into it? What was the reason for the journalism degree? Well, I'm, I'm an improviser, so I'm afraid I didn't really have a great plan. <laughs> I just sort of was winging it. In, in high school is when I started into the performing arts. Well, I should okay. say I was cast in second grade in Peter Pan as uh, like a sort of a like nondescript pirate. You know, just a swashbuckler. And the teachers put us in this like big, like, because I, I'm not sure what they were doing, but they, they they made up everyone's faces. Like they put on like big rouge and like big red lipstick. And because they didn't, we didn't have a backstage. It was just like at, at the, in the gym, there's a stage in the gym, you know? And so there's the steps leading up to the stage. And so when we weren't in a scene, because they couldn't have us like running around. We just sat on the steps looking out at the audience as the action is happening. And since I was basically an extra in this, <laughs> I was just sitting with like rouge and lipstick on, looking out at all of my, all the friends from my neighborhood who uh -huh. were like making fun of me. And I was like, oh my God, if this is what the theater is, I'm never doing this again. This was an <laughs> awful experience. Oh, wow. I still don't like wearing makeup. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I will because I'm a professional. <laughs> right. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't I didn't get into it until like I, I played, you know, from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So mm -hmm. that's you know, that's where UNC is and mm -hmm. basketball is kind of a king there. And I sort of saw that as like mm -hmm. I was I was tall, I was lanky, mm -hmm. pretty athletic. So I was like, Oh, this is my ticket. And I got pretty good at basketball and okay. and uh, played varsity my freshman year and played AAU all throughout high school, but during lunch one day our high school had an improv company and this improv company just sort of like moved all the tables out of the way. And they did this impromptu show that was like, it was like the showtime, you know, the showtime dancers in times square where they're like, all right, <laughs> yeah. come on around, come on. People yeah. just gathered around and watched these kids. And, and I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, this is what I've been, this is what I've been wanting my whole life. Yeah. And so I auditioned at the end of the year and I, I made it for my sophomore year and, and basketball wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really happy doing mm -hmm. it. it, it okay. I got a lot of accolades and a lot of attention for it, but you know, you had to really focus Yeah, a lot of attention on athletics. Oh, when, for sure. Yeah. Especially the higher up you get in athletics. Right. And I was a little concerned about becoming a kind of one dimensional hmm. person. I get it. Okay. As you said before, I'm definitely not a one-dimensional person now. I'm yeah, kind of the yeah, jack yeah. of all trades, master of none. I do it all. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, you're pretty good. I I, I never liked <laughs> the phrase jack of all trades, master of none, because I feel like if you are a jack of all trades, that is the mastery for one. And then also, like, you're quite good at comedy. So, you know, I just never liked that phrase and the way it's applied. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. Good, good, good. No, but I get what you're saying, though, about not wanting to focus so much on basketball because it really is a lot. I mean, I, I, I saw some interview shortly before Kobe Bryant died, and he was saying when he's talking to kids, he tells them to practice every day for three hours. And he said, because other kids aren't doing that. And, and he said, if you practice just a couple hours a week, you're not going to get where you want to be and mm -hmm. it's like okay that is what he did i don't know if that, if everyone else needed to do that because he was kind of particularly unique in his drive and ambition when it came to it but at the same time they're spending a lot of time my my brother was a manager for the basketball team at duke they spend a lot oh of boo time. boo I, no not a yucky not yucky. In this, i know you're from chapel hill you, you know but <laughs> boo devils <laughs> I, I was just thinking the other day about i think because i loved chapel hill yeah. living in raleigh and traveling to chapel hill i loved it but the thing that that i think the real reason that i ended up not really liking them was 
their sticker on the cars that I saw, it was a foot with tar on the heel. And yeah, like, that's gross looking to me. You know, like I never liked that as a little kid. I was like, I, I don't like feet. I think seeing that sticker is why I don't like seeing feet now. I hear that. It's all, it's ubiquitous in Chapel Hill too. <laughs> yes, all over North Carolina, really. Yeah, still, nevertheless, basketball rivalries aside, there's a lot of time spent, and I, I I have seen that myself, and how much time is spent amongst athletes to focus on that. So I I don't blame you. For- well, I mean, I think the same is true about stand up comedy. You know, like yeah. there was a I think gosh, this was probably. Maybe 13 years ago or so, Kamel Nanjiani's wife is from the Triangle. Right. And they wanted to set up a show. So we, you know, we set one up at what was then DSI, Dirty South. Right, right. And I opened for him and um, he headlined, you know, I did probably like 10 or 15 minutes and he did, you know, 45, mm-hmm. 55 minutes. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and they were like, wow, that was really great. Why is he so much better than you? Okay. And I was like, honestly, I think he loves stand-up comedy more than I do, and he just does it a lot more. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think but also, that- you know, I guess he was in New York at that time where mm-hmm. he could get up a whole lot more, too. Yeah. I mean... Oh, I was well, in, you were in I New lived York in Boston. At that time. I was in, I was oh, in New okay. York and Boston and Chicago. There's plenty of stage time to be had. I was thinking you were in Chapel Hill at that time. But oh, no. Were, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, left, I left Chapel Hill as soon as I graduated high school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because you went to Georgia. And then after Georgia, was it Boston or Chicago? Well, after, yeah, after college. Well, in, in high school, I did like, you know, I joined the improv company and then like they all did musicals and played music. And so like I had a band. Yeah, yeah. I did musicals and I was in the dance company. I just like I did all kinds <laughs> of performing arts stuff and I, I loved yeah. it. I was in heaven. And then uh, I went to Miami of Ohio for a year. Mm-hmm. And okay, uh, and then I played music while I was there, but transferred to UGA where I started like an improv company there. Okay, and this is just like a downtown improv company. It was the same kind of thing, right? Like mm-hmm. we would do shows at bars, and people would just like gather around. It's really looking back on it, like some of my fondest memories are of like impromptu improv shows. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And then I knew that I wanted to do improv and that's what, that's what I spent my 10,000 hours on. Yeah. Okay. And not like Kumail on stand up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to spend 10,000 hours on several things. <laughs> yeah. There's only so many hours. I think. There's only so many hours. Yeah. You know, da Vinci or, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. unless you're ambidextrous and can write with two hands and you're you Michelangelo know. or somebody. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, certainly you were learning about comedy in general, doing any of the comedy you were doing. So there was some transferable, there was some transferable knowledge there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you got that opening gig for Kamel, how did that come about? Because I don't want to skip over your time in Boston oh, well, I, or Chicago so much. I moved to Chicago after I lived in Athens, Georgia. Okay. So I lived there for a couple of years doing stand up and improv and sketch and based my life around improv Olympic there. Okay. Um, Yeah. But I studied at the Annoyance in Second City as well. Okay. uh, I knew Kumail from stand up there. Oh, in Chicago. Oh, I didn't realize that that was a place he was in for a little bit. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we had both moved to New York around similar times. Maybe he moved a couple of years before me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think Emily knew that I was from Chapel Hill. And so I, I organized the oh, show. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about this time in Chicago, because you did, as many do, you studied at the theaters that are there. Mm-hmm. But you said you based your approach more off of I.O. Mm-hmm. What made you make that decision? Why did IO become the place for you? Well, at that time I'd been doing short form improv for like seven, seven years. Yeah. I, I was 20, 21 or 22 and mm-hmm. I'd been performing since I was 15. So long form improv was really very interesting and tantalizing to me. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that you can sort of create the format of a show mm-hmm. on the fly without the, 
kind of like a structure and bells and whistles that come with a short form. Short form is like whose lines it anyway. And right, right. long form is your, you know, IO or UCB is known for mm-hmm. performing heralds now. And so that was always really, I really wanted to learn how to do that because I, I had gone there with one of my castmates when I was like 19 mm-hmm. and I stepped in and it was, I remember it was Carl and the Passions and Kevin Dorf and TJ Jagodowski oh, wow. and yeah, John, John Lutz were all playing in this thing. And it was, it was, I, I came in with like a suitcase because I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have a place to drop my stuff off yet. And I just sat by the bar and I was just blown away. I was like, I don't understand how they're doing this. I don't yeah. understand. You ever, you ever see those swing dancing videos on TikTok now? Where it's like these, these these two dancers are just paired together for the first time, and it's like the most amazing <laughs> yeah. thing you've ever seen. It looks totally choreographed, and like you're finding so much meaning in all of this. Uh huh. And that's what I loved about long form improv, right? Particularly what's coming out of a lot of the stuff that I see coming out of IO, mm-hmm. uh, or that was coming out of IO. You know, like you, know, you mentioned TJ Jagodowski. I mean, he's one of those guys where you're like, how is this not a play? We watched exactly. TJ and Dave. I oh just, yeah! How is it not a play that was written? <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it it's it's remarkable. Yeah. It, it's like yeah. I don't know. It's like watching the dream team play basketball. You're just like I don't know. I guess this is how it's done, folks. Just <laughs> sit back and watch this. <laughs> right. So that was that was always really really interesting to me, and I really wanted to know how to do that. Yeah, it's it, you mentioned like it's like the dream team or it's like the when when all-star the all-star game happens and they're people who aren't even on teams together but they're alley-ooping and they're doing all these wild passes and you're like wait a second did yep. they have time to run these play but they're they're so in line and it's just because they both know or they all know basketball so well mm-hmm. yeah exactly and so i always wanted to be like the kind of improviser that can improvise with anybody and i truly uh, feel like at this point in my life you put me on stage with literally anybody and i will perform a show that is watchable yeah and so that obviously comes from the ten thousand hours i assume it also comes from having gone to different theaters and had different schools of thought that you trained in oh yeah definitely for me there's like a big difference between the annoyance approach and mm-hmm. and the IO approach and mm-hmm. I really liked understanding those differences and like having both of those tools to draw from just like any acting tools right that you know some are right for some moments some are right for other moments and right you know the the ideal is that one gets to a place in one's career if you can call improv a career but uh it, gets to a point where you're no longer thinking about it. And right. These things, it's just like a swirling, it's very ethereal. And, you know, there, there was a, there was a while in my life where like on an improv stage and with group mind was like the only place that I saw evidence of God. Wow. Because there were things that were happening that I was literally like, we are not, we are not doing this. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like we are finding much greater meaning here. There is an, there is an intelligence at work. There is mm-hmm. a greater power here mm-hmm. that is is guiding us if we allow if we allow that in. Right. And it's such a beautiful thing when it happens. Yeah, it's like having a thought, and it, and you think, well, I have never said anything like that before mm-hmm. so how could i have come up with that <laughs> exactly exactly it's <laughs> the first time i've brain? ever said anything like that <laughs> yeah yeah there's so many times where something happens and then then it's like an afterthought of wait how did i how did i know to say that or how did that come out of my mouth like yeah. <laughs> and it's getting this reaction and it's like in this flow and i don't know it wasn't like an intentional thing yeah and and you talked about like saying something for the first time like i feel like so much of my the knowledge that i have comes from performing improv and watching other people do improv and just going mm-hmm. what what are they referencing here what are they talking about what is that and then like curiosity looking into that later or um yeah. and also like playing playing with other people and being able to meet somebody at their 
level and their their comedic sensibility, their vulnerability just really expanded my own. They like I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to play bar chords on my guitar until I started playing with a band, right? And I just had to keep mm-hmm. up. Uh-huh. I didn't start dunking by myself in my in my backyard. You know what I <laughs> oh, mean? Interesting. Like, okay. It was like playing with other people and I was like, oh my God, like watching you makes me want to be better. Yeah. And also I guess it's why they say two heads are better than one sometimes, but there's so many times where there's there's just no way if I'm acting in a scene with somebody, if I'm doing an improv scene, I can't anticipate what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. Even if I if it's a script and I know your line, I don't know how you're going to say it. And the way you say it is going to affect how I respond. And I can't really anticipate how you're going to say it or, or exactly what you're going to say if it's an improv scene until you do it. And that can give me an idea in the moment, spur the moment. Absolutely. That I just absolutely, you know, I I can't have anticipated that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it could it could end up being something that's like, oh wow, that was what an amazing scene. Okay, I couldn't write it on my own, you know, like I, <laughs> there's no way to do that. Yeah, you have to be with those people doing it. Well, that that's what was so appetizing about improv to me mm-hmm. at the time. So, like I said, I lived in Chicago for a couple of years and then got hired by the Improv Asylum in Boston. And oh, so okay. Four shows on their main stage and then stayed in Boston for a couple of years doing stand-up and, you know, bar, bar prov. Mm-hmm. And uh, crazy. And like, that's, and that's where I first started going on auditions and Oh, okay. Um, booking, you know, Acting commercials gigs. here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And join SAG in Boston. Oh, cool. SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, it's yeah. it's like, but the, the theater gave my headshot to the casting agencies there in, mm-hmm. in Boston. Mm-hmm. And and so that's where I really like, you know, started to realize like, oh, this is something that I can do. And I booked a couple of big movies. Yeah, um, there was a Ghost of Girlfriends Pass. Ghosts, Ghosts of Girlfriends Pass. I'm in that movie. Mm-hmm. I am. Uh-huh. I shot on I shot for five weeks on that movie and uh, wow yeah it, it was a uh, yeah it was it was life changing for sure so yeah I took that momentum and moved to uh, New York just in time for the Great Recession yes yep <laughs> rich people ruining everything for rich everyone. people rich people and <laughs> yep but you did have this great experience can you talk about why it was such a life changing experience working on that movie before that i had only been on sets for like a few days at a time mm-hmm. and this i got to know the director and the producer and how they worked together and i got to kind of see behind the scenes a little bit and being there made me feel like a career in entertainment is not out of reach hmm like the first day I'm shooting and of course it's a scene with Matthew McConaughey and he comes up to me and he's like, Hey, I'm Matthew. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. And I know who you are. <laughs> and I was like, I'm Micah. He's like, Hey man. So if I, if I came over here and I'm running like this, do you think I'd say the line like this? Or like, would, would, would I come over here and then, and then just run past and then say it over my shoulder. And I'm like, look, man, you're talking to the wrong guy. I, I don't know. The director is right here. But like he, I don't know if he went out of his way or if he's, he must always be like this. I get the impression from reading his book that he is just that way. Like he is kind of legit about actually trying to get into the head of the character and the idea and, and really break down the scene. Yeah. And he did. And he saw me as a creative partner and yeah. in that moment in that in that thing that we're doing he was like you're important to me so i'm going to treat you importantly and it taught me a lot about like you know how to treat people jennifer garner was the same way just like very when they spent their time with me it was very giving and then they also spent a lot of time not with me right yeah also were... was good for them you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, they're doing that with everyone that they were working with, you know? Like, exactly. You know, that's a lot of of focus. And I, yeah. you, you know, maybe you have to be built a certain way to do it. But I mean, people do it. So it's it's a doable. It is <laughs> a doable thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think like, I don't know, the, the, the thing that like really stands out to me that like, I don't know, gives me a lot of hope and also taught me a lot about how to act. So I have this letter opener, right? Mm-hmm. 
And this was nice. given to all of the cast by Robert Forster. Oh, cool. Played the father of the bride in that movie. And yeah, he was also in Jackie Brown. And- got nominated for an Academy Award in Jackie. He's, he, and he yeah. was in On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando was yeah. his first movie, right? He's an amazing actor, yeah. Incredible actor. What a first cool of all, gift. A very cool gift. Because like back then, everybody opened their paychecks every time a paycheck came in. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was like I used it a lot. And I think about him every time I open up. Oh, that's um, sweet. A paycheck. I think he died a year or two ago. He did, um, yes. Yeah, unfortunately. But he sat with me and a couple of other guys were cast as groomsmen in the in the in the in the wedding. And the whole movie's a, a wedding. And right. a couple other guys from Boston. And he sat with us and told us a story at lunch every single day. Oh wow. And each story, so they're like stories about like him working in like black exploitation movies in the 70s and mm-hmm. like you know, Jackie Brown and on the waterfront with Brando and mm-hmm. and each one, each story kind of always wrapped up with this sort of like moral at the end. And then he'd get up and leave. And I was like, you know, after it happened a few times, I was like, these stories that you're telling us, like, they're pretty, they're pretty good. They're good stories. He's like, yeah, in the eighties, when my work dried up, I had nothing. I had this career behind me, mm-hmm. but no prospects he went on like the lecture circuit and just told stories like inspirational oh, stories wow. about working in the golden age of Hollywood wow. the studio system. Yeah. Oh gosh. I wonder but if like, he ever wrote a book. I don't know. I hope so. But just like seeing how generous mm-hmm. and considerate everybody was that like, I knew like, I'm, I have seen Lacey Chabert in, in movies. I've seen a lot of these folks just very, mm-hmm. That's actually how I'm finding LA right now. People are very open. I kind of like it out here. Yeah, you know, I've when I had a radio program, and whenever mm. I talked to any anyone working in LA, it was always, "Oh, no worries." Yeah, you know, just like sunshine and mm-hmm. <laughs> and no worries. They, everyone said, no matter who I talked to, they were always like, "No worries." <laughs> it was the, that was the thing. And then if mm-hmm. I talked to someone in New York, it was always worries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were there were some really nice people that I spoke to in New York who were like bigwig people. But if I spoke to anyone who was not bigwig, they were the ones who were oftentimes more curt. And it was like, okay, <laughs> like these people who are much higher than you are, are taking a lot more time here. <laughs> I don't know why you can't just be a little kind. So you're having that experience with these people. It's a big lesson to you, obviously, on how to treat others. But seeing all the producers, like you were mentioning, did it also give you any knowledge or or even put a bug in your ear for work that you would go on to do? Yes. So a few years later, like there's, I've produced a few like like a short films and and pilots that I directed, and I definitely used a lot of like the same like ways to interact with people, ways to treat people to get the the most. And the best out of them. You know what I'm saying? Even if on the inside, I'm like, come on, man. It's yeah. no worries. <laughs> <laughs> so you you moved to New York mm-hmm. and you start doing a ton of things when you're here. And are you doing sketch? What improv are you doing here? Where are you doing it when you moved to New York? Actually, when I first moved to New York, it was like a, it was, I was not doing a lot of improv. I I started performing with this group called Reverse Five Mm -hmm. and we did like mono scenes or improvised one act plays, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, cool. And um, I just wasn't performing as much as I would have, I was still doing stand up at the time. I, I decided to stop after living in New York for about a year and I actually auditioned for a second city theatrical show in Boston and got the role. And so I spent about a year performing theatrical shows in cities with Second City. Oh, wow. Which was like, great job. Yeah. One of the best jobs I've ever had. And when I came back, the artistic director at the People's Improv Theater encouraged me to audition for a a house team there. And I started playing with the house team there. And I started a a show with one of my Reverse Five castmates called Dan Hodap. And the the show is The Scene. 
you know, it was improvised one act plays. And so we would just invite mm-hmm. improvisers that we really, really liked playing with, who was really good at longer, sustainable scenes, vulnerable characters, and who had an eye for structure because like an improvised one act play, there's literally no edits. There's no like there's just the beginning where you're like all right maybe tell us where we are and then you go for like a half an hour so we produced that show for i don't know a few years it all starts to blend together after a while yeah um, <laughs> i started start playing with the baldwins huh? at the people's uh-huh. improv theater on saturday nights and that was kind of my staple until okay. the pandemic happened and then there was no performance there's and no uh, performance i moved yeah. to south florida and uh oh i didn't realize that Oh yeah. I lived in Fort Lauderdale for two years Oh, uh, and then just started writing a bunch. Oh, cool. Okay. And what sort of stuff were you writing while you were there? Movie scripts and television pilots. Okay. Okay. And is that what precipitated the move to LA? Yeah. I mean, I definitely wasn't going to stay in Fort Lauderdale. So uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with Fort Lauderdale. Right. It's right, right, not right. a lot like it's far away from the industry, the industry and you know, a lot of my friends live in LA. So mm-hmm. it's been yeah. like a couple times a week, I'll get together with somebody for coffee or go for a hike or whatever. And it's nice to just like see somebody that I haven't seen in eight years, catch up with them on, you know, what they're doing. But yeah, this is, this was the idea. And I was kind of planning a, a move from New York anyway. So yeah. Um, yeah. Just, and just maybe being here for a while. More power to you. Good for you for doing that. Thanks. Yeah. Not to go too far back here, but there are these different theaters that you've been to. And then you mentioned you're at the pit and the pit's a great place. Mm-hmm. If you've been to a lot of different theaters, like you said, like can perform with anybody. There's such an open casting call there for shows where you can perform from people from anywhere. There's not this one way of thinking or approaching improv. Yeah, so, that's what I yeah. really liked about the pit, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the most diverse theater that I'd ever been a part of in terms of improv theaters right improv is pretty like people who look like me thrive you know i'm a what i'm a tall white guy with glasses and i'll wear a plaid shirt from time to time you know <laughs> yeah. um and um because because i think because they cast that wide net and mm-hmm. you know people bring their friends in there's lots of jams you get not only like a diversity of background but like a diversity of style of play right so like right exactly there's all different kinds of shows at the pit whereas you know for better or for worse my experience at UCB or IO was that there's like there's a thing that we do here exactly yeah and you you should definitely strive to do the thing that we do <laughs> right which great stuff has come out of both absolutely yeah 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 i'm i have i am one who says whenever people start debating even when i've heard like famous people who maybe started theaters debate Mm. their theater's style against others i always think it's kind of silly because you're debating another successful place's style it just doesn't make sense it's like Mm. You know, if Warner Brothers is like Disney movies, it's like, yeah, they're doing fine over at Disney. So, yeah, it's also like, huh? like, however you get to your art, it I feel like is like immaterial and uninteresting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Like if it helps somebody else get to their art, then great. great. Share it. Tell great. everybody. Definitely. But once you start saying, hey, this other way people are getting to their art, I don't know about that. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work for you, dummy, but it worked for all these, you know, all these other people who are successfully doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's working for them. So leave it alone. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think in, in truth and comedy, there's a forward. I think it's by, I think it's by Sharna. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but they, they, whoever wrote it was talking about, we think we have found the correct way to do uh, improvisation. (laughs) And it's like, Uh, all right (laughs) cool i'm listening (laughs) i forgot about that i don't remember but yeah there's so many improv books right and there's like you could take i've read mcnapier's book i've read truth and comedy i've read jill bernard's book i've i've read a ton of books other than those and i've learned a little something that's helped me and i'm not gonna swear by any particular one you know i like greg Tavares's book a lot i think I think it made a lot of sense to me when I read it. And I tell people that it makes improv make a lot of sense to me in a certain way, but Mm -hmm. that can't be the case for everyone, you know, so they got to read something else to figure Mm -hmm. that out, you know, and that's, that's fine. 
but I'm not going to beat someone over the head with any one book and say, this is the right way to do it. It's like, well, then explain this other theater that's doing it differently and they're having a lot of success. If there's Gimmicks. one right way. Yeah. <laughs> but what would you say is that difference between Boston's Asylum and IO and Annoyance? Because you did mention earlier that you felt, you felt like Annoyance and IO were very different. Mm-hmm. How would you explain those differences? Well, okay. So Second City uses improvisation to create sketch. Right. And that is the, that's their, that's their the focus. goal. Yeah. yeah. And so like, you know, it can all trace back to Viola Spolin and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and her son went on to found Second City, but like, you know, Del Close came out of Second City and so did McNapier, but IO is all about doing long form group improvisation. So it's a lot of group mind. It's a lot of, it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of gifting your partner. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for my experience learning at Annoyance, it was about focusing more on the self. Right. Gifting yourself as a gift to the, to your partner, as a gift to the group. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, sometimes people can go out on stage and be like, all right, I'm going to gift a bunch of people. And then there's, you're doing, you're you're not doing anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. That was what um, I did like about McNapier's book. And and I know that some people really took umbrage with the take care of yourself thing, but I kind of took it to mean what you're saying of, you know, if you just go out and think, well, here's what all these other people are, are going to do. I'm going to gift all them. And you don't think about who you are in the scene, then it can be a disconnect. I mean, I, I, I would credit um, the Annoyance Theater as like probably the reason that I'm capable of improvising with anybody today because Mm. I'm not concerned that I'm not going to be able to do something. Right. Right. But at the same time, I'm going to take whatever you do Mm -hmm. and react to that Mm -hmm. through the lens of the gifts that I've already given myself. Right. So like, you know, as I stated before, like it becomes this sort of like flow of creation. Yeah. Which is simply just reacting and reacting more and reacting more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then it then the time is up yeah. and then people look back on it and they're like wow that was a thing and <laughs> tj and dave, dave do the same thing right yeah. all they're doing is reacting to whatever is happening in the moment yeah and then when you leave the theater you're like i really enjoyed that play i loved how this came around and there had a real nice message you know yeah. what i mean like none yeah. of that none of that happened yeah, exactly. um, it was just yeah. two people existing at the same time reacting to one another right i read their book as well and loved it and i think it's worth reading and it's called improv at the speed of life and i think it's a that's a great name because i i feel like that's what you're describing it's two people who are exact in their mm-hmm. show or or you know in each scene it's two people who are existing or people who are existing and just responding to each other that's the main thing that you can take but you're not going to be able to read that book and go i get how they do it and now i'm going to go do it well, you know, I, I think that's true of like any book, any like practical mm-hmm. book. Like I had a copy of Truth and Comedy and mm-hmm. read it cover to cover. Yeah. And then took my short form troupe in Georgia and was like, <laughs> all right, we're going to do a Herald. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it must have been insane. Like we couldn't figure out how to edit. Yeah. Like we would like high, high knees because it's it like a safe <laughs> word. You know what I mean? Like it's like. You know, we we do something totally out outside the scene, which is like also a valid way of editing. Mm-hmm. And like, but I do think like all these like whatever you do, like if you're listening and you are just starting out, and you know you're you want to start a group or you're in a smaller town, just do it. Yeah, the more you do it, and the more you think critically about it, the more it will become ingrained in your mind. Right. Right. I mean, that group that was that Del Close was in that had him and Elaine May and, you know, the other greats, that's what they would do. They would go do shows and then they would talk about like, well, why just didn't this work and what could have made it work a little better? And I think that is pretty crucial to what you're saying. You know, it's it's being able to critique it and not just go, I had fun. And you're like, oh. Good show, yeah. good show, right? And then Definitely. it's like that's well, the end of the conversation. But that's like, the work, isn't it? Yeah. Same is true for writing. You know what I mean? You you 
we're in the middle of, you know, we've my, my writing partner and I have written a full feature length screenplay, which is wonderful and should be celebrated. Good job, us, yeah, right? Yeah, That's further along than a lot of people get. Mm-hmm. But I had a, a writer friend read it and he was like, all right, so what are you trying to say here? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, man. I just wrote it. I just finished the screenplay. What do you want? Um, like that, the, the, the work never ends. Yeah. Yeah. Did you watch the Jonah Hill documentary about his therapist? I have not. I've heard of it. Hudge or something like. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that his therapist talks about is that like expect and expect constant work in life. Mm -hmm. And that's what life is all about is constantly working. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, Patton Oswalt talked about making it and he's like, when you, when you make it, it just means there's a lot more work available for you to do. And that can sound daunting, but when I think about it, there's so many nights where I start toiling over something that's just like some goofy bit or some like silly thing I'm just going to send to my brother, mm-hmm. but I'm up until like the middle of the night sometimes working on things. And it's like, I didn't, I don't go to bed upset that i had spent all that time working on yeah i mean that. what else do you want to do with your life if exactly. you want to do something else that a, my my director in high school was like if you can envision yourself doing anything other than acting you should definitely do that <laughs> yeah for sure they, because the life the life of an time. actor yeah the life <laughs> of an actor is not to be envied but if you can't see yourself doing anything else same thing with comedy right if like right. Music. If all you love to do is comedy mm-hmm. then do that all the time right I heard a, a friend who's a lawyer was saying he'd read a lot of legal stuff before he passed the bar. He was reading a lot of legal documents or, or you know, just whatever they read. And, what a weirdo. Uh, what a weird guy. <laughs> and somebody was saying like, oh, gosh, like, do you like, isn't that a lot of reading? Do you like doing that? Because I know the language of it is so difficult to read. And he was like, if I didn't like reading it, then I shouldn't do it. Yep. You know, like. I enjoy reading legal documents yeah. and, and legal precedents. <laughs> well, that's that's the way basketball was for me. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed playing. Did not want to practice <laughs> three hours a day like Kobe Bryant is telling us to do. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? And I still get to play basketball today. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to do it on the level that someone who is – gunning for the nba would do it right. to do it you know but the same thing but you know my basketball skills have not improved since high school either sure sure because sure. i haven't worked it right right and right like the, the the same is true about you know there, there's a lot of like improv groups that i've coached or taught and i'm like y'all aren't making any y'all aren't making any progress yeah and it's because you don't do anything outside of this and yeah. that's okay if you just enjoy what we're doing here and you enjoy right. doing the one show a month that, that you're doing and you're okay, not really doing any work, not improving, that's cool too. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that I kind of say about people, like someone will criticize an open micer for like bits they're doing. And it's like, if this is what that person wants to do after work, then that's what they should be able to do. They don't have to be as intense about it as Chris Rock or whoever, or, you know, mm-hmm. like some, like there are people who will spend all night critiquing and thinking and watching other things and learning more because they, they love it, you know, like that makes sense for them. But if you don't want to do that stuff and would, and understand what level you're going to get out of it from not putting more into it, then, you know, fine. Like if someone doesn't want to work, but yet they want to have the jobs that, takes doing all that work then it's like well you shouldn't get that job <laughs> like, yeah what? like if you're and how do you think you're going to if you want to be like the best injury attorney in your town but you refuse to go to law school and read any legal documents <laughs> and pass the bar like right. yeah what are you complaining about right and you know even if somebody wants to spend if someone did want to spend three hours a day practicing basketball so you can get better and all they want to do is rec league i would still say like well more power to you if that's what you want to do totally. <laughs> but someone who doesn't want to do that but want to have they want to reap the benefits of something they didn't sow. well that's that's where i draw the line 
Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, you got to put in the work if you want to expect to get something on that level out of it. But otherwise, it's what you want out of it. Who cares? <laughs> it's like, yep. it's up to you. You decide that. You have done a couple of premieres for a playwright. Were they stage plays? Like, how, it was for Greg, is it Codis or Codis? Codis. And, and so what were, can you, can you tell me what those premieres were? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, one was called Give the People What They Want. And there were like a few vignettes. We performed it at the the pit. And these are like, you know, this is like off Broadway. And yeah, it's basically like putting it up to see how audiences react to it, to to hone it and perfect it. Very cool. What, Another one was called Lunchtime. And we performed many, at the Brick Theater in Brooklyn. How many shows like that did you do? Did I mean, did you want to get much attention out of theater? No, I never did. Acting in theater was never my, mm -hmm. never my goal. Um, yeah, but I like Greg. I know Greg from the scene. Okay, um, and uh, you know I liked his sensibility, and I like working with him. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, it was just something you know fun to do to keep me in shape. Yeah. More recently, and and I I saw this when it came out. You produced something called the Bob Ross Challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw that because it was it was primarily comedians that you brought on for that, right? Yeah, there's a lot of comedians. And the idea was they were given paints and they were shown an episode of Bob Ross and they could pause it, but they No, no, had they can't they can't pause it. Oh, they couldn't pause it. No, that, well, that, that's the challenge. <laughs> they they had only the 20 minutes or however long the episodes really were to create. So how did that come about? Because we love Bob Ross here. I he's one of my faves. Oh, I love Bob Ross. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just one of those ideas. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, what if initially we wanted to call it Bob Ross fails? Cause it was like, we were like, there's no way anybody could succeed, but people actually kind of succeeded. Like Janelle James knocked it out of the park. Oh, nice. So yeah. And, and then we just, we used it as something to raise money for the leukemia and lymphoma society, which he died of. And my, my creative partner, Mark Stetson's father also passed away of that. So just in honor of them. Uh, but then Bob Ross's estate got in touch with us and told us we didn't have the rights to do it. So we had to oh. take them all down. Down. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that is the tough thing of like showing yeah. it. But I did go to a. Uh, it wasn't a bar show. It was just like a bar event that they would do every once in a while, where they would show an episode and give you paints. It was watercolor, so not the same thing that he was working with. But and we actually it's expensive. It, 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 those those paints are expensive. Painting is a very expensive hobby, and when people complain to me about like, oh, you know paying for improv, blah, blah, blah. What hobby do you not pay anything for that's as extensive? Is it like, you know, I see you have a guitar behind you, like that costs yep. money. It is. The strings, that yep. costs money. <laughs> like you got to yep. keep buying strings. You get an electric guitar, you got, you know, all the, all the, you know, stuff that can, you can get pedals. You I mean, dance, you know, like you know, streaming Netflix costs money. Like right, like costs money. Everything does. Yeah. I mean, gardening is maybe a cheaper thing to do, yeah, but hey, even then. Do you know how expensive land is? <laughs> yeah, you got to buy the land. You got you, you have to, <laughs> that garden has to go somewhere. If you're either renting the property or everything, everything is going to cost you some money. Right. I just never understand the complaint, but painting, boy, that's real expensive. This is, this is why a lot of artists painted over paintings because they're like, oh, I don't totally. like it. And I don't want to get another canvas. <laughs> so I'm going to paint. The Mona Lisa's painted over something, everyone. <laughs> like, just so you know, yeah, stuff is not inexpensive, even for the famous. So let's talk about the L.A. move a little bit more and mm -hmm. where you'd like to go next. Are you performing much out there? Not a lot. We're hoping to put the scene up out here. Oh, cool. So hopefully that will happen soon. And had a contract when I came out here, it, it lapsed. So that's the that's the plan right now is that I'll okay. you know, just keep writing and hope I've got faith. Yeah. That's that's such a big part of having a career in entertainment is like, there's ups and downs. There are definitely ups and downs. And that's, that is something that people don't really recognize enough, who like people who aren't in it. Because they'll go like, well, why is this person doing well? And it's like, I don't know. Do you also know that they had times where they weren't doing well? You didn't know who they were two years ago. <laughs> yeah, like so many situations like that. And there's so many people who were on big shows 
and then they didn't really get cast in much after that you know mm-hmm. they they were on big sitcoms or just some big show for years and then they they weren't in anything i mean i always look at neil flynn as truly having one of the best careers because he was on scrubs for nine years nine or ten years or whatever and he was on the middle for another nine or ten years and that mm-hmm. is incredibly uncommon mm-hmm. you know and he, he he gets work still he's beloved he's fantastic and he gets to improvise every once in a while and he gets to improvise a lot like that guy to me is living the dream like when people are like oh the rock has such a successful career or whoever it's like he's got a big machine that he keeps running and that is stressful oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> like the, the, the life that he and ryan reynolds are living you might look at their house and be like oh they're living a great life or look at their instagram and be like oh things are going so great they are stressed out yeah, <laughs> they've got I mean, a lot they're dealing with. you know if that's something that you want as well then great then work towards that steve harvey right right you know? but you know, it really all like I think it's really, really important for artists or just people in general to go, what is it that I actually want? Because I do think that a lot of people are like, I want to be famous. Yeah. And the question after that is then what? Yeah. Yeah. Then what? <laughs> then what do you want to do? It's so, like you're famous now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like, then, and then like, what do you want to do? Fame can be you... so fleeting. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you want to parlay that into a, you know, do you want to be Marky Mark and then and then Mark Wahlberg and then have your own production <laughs> yeah. company and and your yeah. own tequila brand? And, you know, is that what you want? You know, so I think like having having some like very, very lofty goals can be helpful or to mm-hmm. go, you know what? I want to live a, a life where like people don't know who I am, but I still get to do my work. I still get to improvise. You know, I want to raise kids in a, you know, in a safe environment where they got good schools, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes this has happened to people. They can want that, you know, it's like, I want to act, but I don't want the fame. And then they get cast in something and they just blow up and they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that at all. Not from this. And then it ends up being this, this big thing. And now they don't have that anonymity that they want. But fame isn't the thing to me to chase success is what i what i'm trying to have and that may in some facets in some ways that can be out of my control would would maybe take some fame to have but i'm just not chasing the fame part i want the work i want the satisfaction of doing that kind of work and being able to take care of me and my family Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that's really it (laughs) that's like i don't it, it would be great to have some side work that I'm doing and, and and parlaying it into something else. I don't know that I would go for the tequila market or something like that because everyone has <laughs> their liquor brand. But having something else that I'm working on and, and keeping me creative, that would be awesome. But I don't want to do it at the expense of having some sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Well, now we're here at the end of the episode. Let's create something together. Right. And you've produced a lot of things and, and put on a lot of shows. And I am thinking of putting on some stuff here in New York. So is girlfriend of the show, Justina. You, I don't think you met her because I don't, I think uh, I met you before. I, met I think her. I would have remembered a name like Justina. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was part of when I met her. I was like, Justina. Oh, wow. I love that. I know someone with that name. Yeah, I've got to talk to her some more. (laughs) But nevertheless, she and I both want to put on shows. So if you're going to advise someone on how to do that, what would you suggest? Well, to me, it seems like it's a marrying of what your interests are and then what there is a dearth of right now. So like what niche is not being filled in the comedy show department and then how do your interests align with that Mm, that's a very good distinction right so like there's tons of herald shows right Right. so like putting on another herald show may not be the thing unless there's something on top of that oh very good point we all have hats you know yeah that's that's (laughs) everybody in hats everybody in hats now okay um so yeah so 
you're saying you guys, is there something in particular that you guys had in mind? Well, she has her own idea that I cannot divulge. And sure. my, I don't, I don't have as specific of an idea as you were just mentioning. Uh, someone suggest, I just will go to certain shows and I miss hosting and I miss putting shows together. And mm. that is kind of the big spark for me. It's like, ah, I would really like to do this and I would like to do it a little better than they're doing it. What, um, what about the There It Is live show? You know, that the, the idea has crossed my mind. and I But I don't know if I would do that as stand-up or stand-up and sketch, like a variety show or what. I mean, like the difference would be Cause like, you don't have me performing anything here. Like you could have somebody perform and then come out and enter the interview them afterwards about a particular thing that you are interested in about them. Yeah. You know, I've always been a little scared of the live show idea. Cause I'm like, who really listens? Would anyone come out? But you know, that's, I guess that actually leads to the next question I had about this. How do you get people to come out? Because you can ask your friends only so much to come to shows. How do you get a real crowd to a show? I feel like that's the big conundrum that a lot of people are facing here is that they're getting the performers to ask their friends. But, you know, you, you want a real crowd in the audience and not just the performers and the performers. Friends. Right. Well, there's got to be value, right? People have mm -hmm. got to be like, all right, so after work, I'm going to come and watch this show because it provides some sort of value for me like people came and watched the scene a lot of improvisers came and watched the scene because they got to see people performing in a style that they really liked also consistency is super helpful but then like what you're doing here i think like the internet is great reach mm -hmm. there's lots of you know podcasts that do lots of live shows now yeah so i think as as the audience grows for this show Mm -hmm. the more people will you know come yeah in. you gotta make it easy point. you gotta make it easy for them that's true that's a good point yeah i and so so what if it's someone who doesn't have something like a podcast with a built-in audience to a certain you know because there are a lot of people in new york who listen to the podcast i've seen the analytics so but <laughs> what if someone doesn't have that and they're but they have an idea for a show they want to put something up and they still want to make sure they have a good crowd there uh, I mean, that's places that you have to like tell people about the show, like a promotion. That's a good, I mean, trick. sometimes you got to call in favors, you know, you got to get <laughs> yeah. everybody from work to come. You, know, yeah. you got to get everybody. Uh, mom and dad's got to be there. <laughs> yeah. First show probably would be a lot of, a lot of that. Definitely. Um, and then I think like having something for people to come and see the next show for, so having a plan, you know, like a three show plan. Where you're like, Ooh. you guys are definitely going to want to come to the next show because this is happening. Yeah, that's a really good point. I always say that the most important thing that people can do in, in arts and entertainment is the next thing. <laughs> because so many people, they've, they've put a lot of time and effort into their first album. And then they didn't keep working on songs. So when the second album came around, it was like a lot of times a bit of a dud. Not that it necessarily could, you can't always expect the next thing to be as big as the last thing. But if you weren't working on it consistently, consistently mm -hmm. trying to get more work out of you, then yeah, you're going to have a really hard time following up a big hit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I think, yeah, put, putting your all into that first show, making sure that's a big hit. And then, you know, with the scene, we used to like tease some people who are like special guests who, you know, are either coming in from out of town. So it's like, you're only going to be able to see this person Ooh, yeah. for this particular show. So come to this show mm. um, or somebody who was like a special guest from, you know, television and, you know, you've, you've seen them on MTV. So come and see them in person. This will be exciting for you. Oh, cool. Awesome. There it is. Thanks so much for doing the podcast, Micah. And there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to do it. So thankful to have him on. He shared a lot of really great insight about improv and comedy, but also that great story about working on Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and how Jennifer Gardner and Matthew McConaughey were making people feel like equals the way they are working with them. I thought that was very insightful and educational. Find out more about Micah and find his work on his website, micahsherman.com. 
We have a link to that in the bio. Also, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is, and follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and Instagram at Jason Far Picks. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. Go to ThereItIsPod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 